Hi everyone, this is Anissa from the Cornell Advocacy Project, an organization dedicated to providing an education and advocacy to anyone with an internet connection. We are thrilled to be launching Speak Now, a combined live webinar and podcast project. Each series of Speak Now will focus on a broad advocacy theme. During our first series, Dismantling Division, we'll take an in-depth look at the proverbial monster under America's bed, political and ideological polarization. With the expertise of our guest speakers, we're going to define and break down the problems that polarization creates. We'll then discuss strategies for engaging in productive discourse and advocating in hostile, polarized spaces. Each speaker brings a unique skill set and perspective to our conversations. For today's episode, Courting Opposition, we'll be speaking with Tahani Abushi, current leading candidate for the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Tahani has personal experience not only as an advocate in her community, but as a person whose identity has become increasingly politicized. Welcome, Tahani. It is so great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this conversation, and, and I commend the Advocacy Project and Cornell University for really hosting such meaningful conversations that most people actually shy away from. So it's exciting that you guys uh, are ready to get knee deep in such a, an interesting topic. In 2019, research found that 40% of voters did not have a single friend from the other political party. And during the 2016 election, Pew Research found that among those highly engaged in politics, 70% of Democrats and 62% of Republicans said that they were afraid of the other party. Since last year's election, commentators from the Washington Post to CNN and Fox News have claimed that we live in quote unquote, two Americas. So what do you think? Is this true? And what do you take this to mean? I mean, it's interesting to look at um, who were the voters that were asked. I think what has happened most recently between the Democrat and Republican Party um, is obviously the intention to divide the country based on uh, which political party you identify yourself in. Um, but I can tell you a lot of the issues that might seem Democrat or Republican are important to everyone and they impact everyone's quality of life. When we talk about two Americas, what I think, for me, it's interpreted as the fight to protect corporations versus the fight to protect people. And that's how I split it in my mind. Um, and I think that when one gets into politics, especially where money is involved, you start to see how money can influence decisions and priorities. Uh, and that is why that gap continues to widen. And it causes a lot, a lot of issues, uh, issues that people either feel like they can't be part of politics because they don't feel seen, acknowledged, or heard, or those who feel like politics caters directly to them. Uh, so it encourages more of their involvement, influence, and money. The idea of two Americas isn't exactly new. Even, even Martin Luther King had mentioned the idea of another side of America. So do you think the United States has ever been completely unified or how do you see that between citizens specifically? No, I don't think America has ever been unified. I think the way, uh, the manner in which it was established uh, really solidified the otherization and the two types of Americas. You had those that had the power, the privilege, the authority, and those who didn't. I mean, from Native Americans to African Americans, to slavery, to the Jim Crow laws, to the Civil Rights Act, to women being property. There was intention, there were laws, there was deliberate action to isolate people as an inferiority class. And that, and those are the structures that have remained today that we continue to try and grow out of, but don't ever wanna really change that infrastructure. And that's why a lot of these policies continue to fail. Um, and in regards to Martin Luther King, I think what was important about that is the, the white supremacy complex that has yet to be addressed, that, that is still deep-seated in a lot of um, our rules, our regulations, the rhetoric, political conversations. And I think that is what uh, leaders like Martin Luther King, and even today's the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X, I think all of these political leaders were trying to drive that why, why the racial disparities, why the otherization, let's, let's identify it and really talk about it if we actually want to do something about it. Yeah, and that really pulls in the idea of advocacy and our responsibility to work toward that unity. That being said, I know your views on polarization have been influenced by your experiences in both your childhood and your career, 
So I want to begin with a quote that you've mentioned to me in the past. I've never had the luxury of fear. So instead of fear, I prepared myself to be ready. So why for yourself and for many others is fear a luxury? And what does this mean in the context of polarization? For me, um, the fear indicates something that, you know, you're afraid of happening. Um, and then for me, you know, growing up, first of all, the child of, of immigrants, uh, my parents immigrated here from Palestine, came to Brooklyn, um, and really had to survive, ensure that we had a roof over our head, that we had food on the table, just very basic necessities for a long time. Um, and then um, when I was 14, my father was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And so everything, the foundation they had established for us was completely gone. And there was instability inside the home, a lot of instability outside of the home. Um, and, and my siblings and I were very much on the brink of falling prey to the statistics that say we're supposed to end up in the gutter. And so to fear is, for me, I interpreted it as if it was an option of not happening. And I think that for me, I felt that those things were just very real. There, were, there was no plan B, there was no safety net, there is no looking for help anywhere else. I'm either going to do everything I can to make sure it doesn't happen to us, or we just going to prepare for that to happen. And so that hesitation, uh, that looking for help, that having an opportunity to think through options, we just didn't have them. And that's why for me, what my parents instilled in all of us was, you have to work 10 times harder, you have to go uh, the extra mile every time. Cutting corners is not an option um, because you're already starting with so little. And uh, that is how I pretty much do everything, um, big or small task. I think it's important to first and foremost, make sure that you aren't relying on other people for foundational things that can be taken away from you, that can destabilize you, but also as you begin to rely on yourself, you're able to advocate for yourself and go for the things that you want and highlight issues that instead of you absorbing uh, and saying it is what it is, you're now in a position to say, well, we, don't, we shouldn't be accepting that. We need to change that. And so for me, that's how it really uh, plays out. And that's how I've been able to make myself ready uh, and prepare myself as much as possible all the time. So for young people who are at the mercy of the asymmetries in our justice system, is taking a certain political side a choice? Are they, you know, either forced to take a polarized position in that way? I think, you know, it's interesting because uh, as a candidate myself, a first-time candidate, people look for someone not only to listen, but to trust that they're going to do right by them when they get into office. And so a lot of times, if they don't know who you are before you're running for office, uh, they're really trying to figure out, is this someone that cares? And when you make those promises to people, your constituents, to voters, to people you're speaking with, um, they take it serious. You know, they want to believe in you. They want a better future. And so there, there is integrity here. And for me, I think that when you establish that trust and integrity with a community, with a person, um, it makes them gravitate towards you. And that's what a lot of this is about. And I think, you know, when I was saying earlier that some people just feel cut out of the process, a lot of us feel desensitized. I mean, me as a Muslim Palestinian woman, my identity has been polarized and talked about since before I even knew who I was, right? Since when I was born as a female, as a Muslim, as a Palestinian, um, who we are, what we should be uh, is always a topic of conversation that people invite themselves to. And I think that having seen the political discourse for so many years, hurtful things that are said, racist things that are said in open public by, by elected officials, by people like our president, you start to feel like, I guess anything goes, so why should I believe it? And, and that's one of, one of the main things that we are actually fighting against as the group of people who are desensitized and are cynical about how politics work is growing pretty big. And the ones who want to stay politically involved, that, that fight to be influential and be the decision makers, it kind of stays small, but still powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for me, coming of age around 2016 as a Muslim woman myself, 
um, I never realized in the past how politics are inherently personal and how polarization becomes impersonal or becomes personal in that way. So I think you're right. It's really important to have candidates that we believe are actually identifying with our struggles and the things we're going through because it's it's important for yeah. the goals we're trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. So for you, how did polarization impact you during your youth and college years? Like you said, you were your identity was being made called into question before you even knew it yourself. Yeah, I think, you know, when I first put on the hijab, I think I was maybe my eighth grade or maybe even high school. Um, I I was trying to experiment with it, figure out, you know, okay, I was born into a Muslim family, but what is it, right? What does it mean to me? And as I was trying to figure it out, I got a lot of hate for it. So the bullying, the harassment, um, the bombardment of questions in in a negative way, uh, in an aggressive manner, it inhibited me from understanding who I wanted to be. And and the focus was now on how do I get ready to respond to the harassment and the bullying all the time? And it came from students and teachers alike. It came from people in the public. If I was commuting, um, especially after 9-11, I wasn't for myself anymore. I wasn't Tahani Abushi. I was this Muslim person walking down the street that everybody felt unified in their feeling of, I need to say something and this person's going to have to answer for it. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, I have to always be prepared to answer. I don't know what I'm answering to. I don't know what I'm supposed to say because I don't fully understand what's going on, but I have to be ready. Uh, And then I tried, I got into it. I tried to talk about the racism, the discrimination. We did a lot of restorative justice type conversations, a lot of learning conversations, talking out people's biases, stereotypes on all sides. Um, and it's hard. It's, it's very difficult to do as somebody that feels threatened by these things and unsafe by these things. But now being in a position where I need to teach people about things um, as well was, was also an interesting position to be in. Um, and then the target slowly moves, right? It goes from full-blown bullying harassment to your face to subtle comments by your teachers, subtle comments by professors, by people you're interviewing for a job with, by people in authority positions that are supposed to help you get access to those next opportunities in your life. And when it becomes discreet like that, you really have to pay more attention in a way where you're where you understand that these are people's opinions and biases and they cannot withhold you or hold you back from what you've worked so hard to accomplish and to prevent you from accomplishing that next goal. And they might be an obstacle in that way, but you cannot take their opinion and biases uh, as your word. And, and even as I became a lawyer, right, being a female, a female trial attorney in New York City, you know, over 80% of the legal profession are white men. And so, of course, you know, I litigate cases in federal and state court and I'd still walk into a courtroom and they'd say, excuse me, ma'am, wait for your lawyer. Because someone like me in their mind wouldn't be a lawyer, would be somebody who would be in need of a lawyer. And so that's the different ways it begins to develop and become more discreet. But as as someone that was always subject to these conversations, the thoughts, the impositions of the biases, I'm, it's, I'm just hyper aware of it in, in however it presents itself. Absolutely. And, you know, especially for women, especially women of color, it's really hard not to internalize those comments, even though you know what they are, even though we're told frequently exactly what they are, it's still very hard not to um, critique yourself or internalize them in certain ways. So um, in high school, a lot of students turn to mentors or organizations where they try and find a voice or can feel more comfortable being opinionated and standing up for themselves. So for those who feel voiceless, being given the opportunity to speak and be heard is so important. So how do you think polarization keeps certain people voiceless and what can they do about it? I think polarization is intimidating, right? Especially when when you're new to learning how to speak, forget about speaking out, right? When you're trying to understand why is this wrong? 
you know, I, I heard something, I read something, it feels wrong. I'm not sure why it feels wrong, or I think I know why, but, but I don't want to say it out loud because I'm afraid of the backlash. I, again, as, as a current candidate, I am somebody that, well, let me get back as a Palestinian Muslim woman, right? We're always filtering what we're saying, right? Because we understand that our words have repercussions and we want to make sure we are, um, making sure the message comes across, not to be offensive, not to be miscommunicated. Um, and it's still hard. We've got millions of people in this world. Someone's going to misinterpret something or you misspeak. And I think that these conversations, these environments, one, are not forgiving to growth. A lot of people in these conversations, you have to understand their intention. Is it somebody that just wants to make you look bad, get likes and retweets? Ha, I gotcha. And that's it. Keep it moving. Or is this a place where you can grow and you can say something out loud, being not sure about it in hopes that there is room for growth um, and guidance? And so that intimidation part, I think, is like the biggest factor here. Um, but then the second part of it is if it's somebody with authority, I think also we have a tendency to defer uh, our knowledge, uh, our wisdom, our experiences for that authority. Right. Like it, for, for instance, the Muslim community, right. Whenever there's an issue about Islam or the Muslim community, you'll see a lot of experts who aren't Muslim, who aren't from a certain region. Um, if really in, in these news stations across the country, whatever issue, whether it's China, India, Saudi Arabia, um, police violence, racism, discrimination, look at who they call to be the experts that are, are the sound bites out there. They're usually not people who come from these impacted communities or who are primary sources. And so for the rest of us, we see, well, like, of course that person should know more, but why not you, the person that's living in it, that's living through it. And, and it's very important that we don't discount our personal experiences. We don't discount our lived experience or the fact that we too have a voice um, and we should give ourselves room to grow and discuss in a healthy way. Yeah, absolutely. So how can young people fight to change the narrative? Like you said, it's not their voices that are, that are being asked about issues that affect them. So how can they fight to change the narrative against their identity, which is sometimes inherently polarized? I think it's important for before you, you think about undoing someone else's argument, understand yours first. Understand the issue that you are arguing for or against. Understand why you feel that way. Look at the history, read research and books on it um, so that you have an opportunity to see the entire issue before you speak it out loud. Um, I think that will help with confidence, right? In speaking out loud and then also being prepared for the argument and the discourse that comes after. For me, being prepared allows me to improvise I mean, when I do my trials, I memorize a lot of things. I read every single document. I have everything tabbed and highlighted because when you start to present your case in trial, you're not holding all of your notes and, and files with you. You're doing it on your feet, off the cuff in front of a jury in live court on the record. And for me, I always found my strength in being prepared. And that prepared is making sure I have as much knowledge as possible, both in what I have and what I don't have and how it will be received. And I think that's important because first and foremost, you want to educate yourself and then you'll be able to assess the conversations. What are worth your time? Is this a conversation where there's going to be growth? It's going to be a healthy discourse. We're going to learn something or is this something that's a tit for tat? We're going to play gotcha, you know, and sometimes it's necessary when somebody is outwardly wrong and offensive. Um, sometimes those conversations might be appropriate. But if it's somebody that you're hoping can change their ways and that could be an ally, um, then I wouldn't you know, shy away from reaching out or having those conversations. And they're gonna get heated and they'll probably get awkward, right? But that's okay. I mean, you don't have to have the perfect environment for these conversations. That's why the intention is very important. Yeah, sometimes those are the most necessary conversations that need to happen. But as a young person that was impacted by a polarized system, you went on to fight against this over the course of your legal career. So now being an attorney with this background and this platform of being one of the few in your position who's experienced this other side, how has your work 
change into this increasingly polarized climate? How does it, how is it affected? How has it changed over the last four years? Yeah, I think for me, the imbalance of power has always been a problem, a really big problem. And I think that with our government and such authority to not only invade our privacy, but really destabilize our lives and have all the resources and information to do that. And on the other side are us civilians and whatever we have in our pocket. And, you know, I saw that with my own family. There was a moment in the courtroom during my parents' trial where the judge asked the prosecutor, what, what are you going to do with all these kids? And her response was, they're not my problem. And she kept it moving like it was business as usual. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, that was the question that has been on my mind this entire trial. And she doesn't have a plan. And they didn't need to have a plan. But on the other side was my mother, who was now responsible for single-handedly raising 10 children, the youngest being six. And they had moved my father all across the East Coast, the furthest place being in Ohio, eight hours away. Um, and so the fact that they were able to tell our story and paint us a certain way and have access to information, and we were always fighting to have that information, um, it inspired me to become a lawyer. It inspired me to, to become an attorney that stands by uh, everyday families like mine um, to balance the scales of justice and to fervently represent our positions and protect our rights. And so the work that I do now as a civil rights lawyer, I fight against discrimination racism, police violence, excessive force. I represent children who are sexually assaulted in schools, who have mustered up the courage to come and tell uh, their teachers and counselors, hey, this happened to me. And the response was, are you sure you're not making it up? Maybe it happened somewhere else. Maybe you're just cranky. And what that does to a person is completely breaks them down. And these are sometimes elementary school kids. Right. Um, and so knowing because I was at that, I was there at one point, right, knowing how my mind was um, free game, right, was susceptible to these kinds of responses that chip away at your value, chip away at your confidence, chip away at who you are um, without anybody coming to, in, to balance that, to show you that, hey, I know this is an authority figure but don't listen to them. Because when are we ever told not to listen to authority figures? We spent our whole life, you know, up until probably college being told, just listen to your teachers, listen to your counselors, listen to your elders. And for order in, in your school system, sure. But into your mind, I think that's just a, a very dangerous place to go without it being unchecked. And so all of the work that I do uh, it seeks to, to get some checks and balance on that authority and power and ensure that our stories are being told, that our values and our, our rights are being protected, um, and that we get that information, we get that access, and we get a little more resources because that is how you accomplish the structural change in anything we're going to do. How does your political platform specifically address polarization? There's two very important policies that I have proposed. One is uh, a declination and diversion and alternative to incarceration policy, which basically starts at the questioning of how did this, how did these allegations come to the office? What is the position of the officer? What are these allegations? What is the history uh, of this officer or the person that's being accused? Um, how did it happen? All of the basic questions that really uh, are swept under the rug and a charge is pushed forward uh, and then everybody just figures it out after the fact. But because I understand the impact of the decisions a prosecutor makes on a person's life, the immediate impact, for me, I vow to scrutinize that process, make it transparent, ensure that we're collecting data to identify these abusive patterns and practices and we're going to fix them. Uh, and the other part that's really important here um, is the transparency, right? Is making sure that we, we are making sure the public has access to this information. And we can do that through open file discovery, which means the defense will have access to a lot of this information that typically only the prosecutors have access to. But as defense attorneys, we have to constantly fight to get access to it. And then the second part is police accountability. Um, pretty much the main way that anyone comes into contact with the prosecutor's office is through law enforcement. 
And so what, what is that relationship and what is the accountability for officers who engage in misconduct, um, who plant evidence, who intimidate witnesses, who file false charges, who make false arrests, who have complicated backgrounds and been repeatedly accused of excessive force? Um, and, and where is the accountability in that? These are positions of public trust. These are positions that can gravely impact a person's life permanently, uh, and they need to be actually scrutinized and rectified. And so for me, when I think of that imbalance of power, that polarization, racism, discrimination, um, it's a very real issue for the district attorney's office and the introduction of a civilian to this system uh, has to be really scrutinized and made transparent. How do you respond to people in the community? Because these issues are inherently polarized themselves. Um, how do you respond to people who react negatively because of that? I take us all back to the same premise that, look, everybody wants to be safe. Everybody wants to know that they're going to walk out of their home and they're going to be okay or their loved ones will go out into public and they'll be okay. Or if they're home with a spouse uh, or a partner, that they will feel safe in their own home too. And it's a matter of defining what safety is and how do we accomplish that. For me, I wanna get to the root causes of these circumstances and what they all are really instabilities. Um, instabilities that, that force people to make decisions that had they had enough resources, they might have not made that decision. And if they did make mistakes, then we're in the business of second chances, not throwing people away. We want to understand how it happened and why it happened. Because once we understand that, that's when we can really focus on rehabilitation, preventative measures, preventing recidivism, addressing the needs of the victim in a holistic way, one that can accomplish restorative justice not just saying, okay, X happened, well, I'm gonna put them in jail and everything's gonna be absolutely fine for everyone across the board. And it's not true. Um, and so these tactics of incarcerating, prosecuting and convicting at all costs has not made people feel safe, but it has been the only method made available to us. So it's very difficult for people to think of an alternative, to believe an alternative, and to trust that an alternative would work. So every time something scary pops up, there's a crime, there's a reporting about it, people say, okay, I need to go back to what I think is familiar, to what I know is supposed to be making me safe, and that's what I'm going to advocate for. But I think through a lot of, of very detailed conversations, walking people through their fears, showing them what the alternatives look like, the success of these alternatives, how they're implemented in other places, and they're working, there are real measurements of success here, we get a lot of buy-in. Uh, and so finding common ground and working together and, and making that person or that community part of the policy, part of how we create a new method, not only buys investments from them, but allows them to see that alternative in a, in a meaningful, real way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So while you're fighting for these issues from the top up, I want to talk about what we as advocates can do moving forward, just building on the concrete advice you gave earlier. How do we move forward and strive for unity and achieve understanding while still being true to your voice and your identity and those of others as well? I think, you know, as I was saying earlier, it's important to know where you want to be and what your position is and to give yourself room to grow and understand things. Even as a candidate now, there are a lot of issues that I have yet to be exposed to as a civil rights lawyer uh, and getting a real deep dive into how data collection works, facial recognition technology, a lot of things that I understand how the premise works, but to really balance, okay, this is a prosecutor's office, but I wanna make sure we're protecting the public and we are ensuring an equitable and just system. And so you have to understand, one, where do you want to fall on that spectrum? What is your position? What is the position that is, you know, I don't want to say opposition, but what is that other end of the spectrum? Uh, and then being comfortable having the conversation, if it's beneficial. We shouldn't be afraid uh, of the opposition. I think that's the most important thing. When you fear of what's going to be said to negate you or to cut up your argument, um, it creates a barrier that interferes with knowledge. However, if it's somebody that is just 
going to antagonize you. That is a hater, right? A troll. We know plenty of them around, especially on social media where you can be a bot, you can be anonymous and say the most disgusting, offensive things out there that you have to find a way to tune them out because it's abusive and it can get to you, but it's not something you should follow. It's not something that you should pay attention to or that you should let dictate um, where you go and how far you go. Have your mentors in place, people that have either written books, that have lectured on it, your friends, your family that are going to remind you who you are, why you do this, and why it's important to maintain your position. Because the likes of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and everyone else that came before us, they didn't waver. And they were hated in their time. They weren't celebrated like they are now. And, and that's the part that we don't hear about enough. But consider yourself in the same position. Given what you said about internet haters and social media trolls, what's your advice for an advocate when speaking up may put you in an actual dangerous position when these haters get beyond the screen and can permeate everyday life? Would you suggest that strength in numbers or should we surround ourselves with people who think similarly? How do we get beyond the actual threat? Yeah, I think, um, first of all, know where the threat's coming from. Like I said, if it's just a troll or a bot saying some one-off comment, don't, don't think twice about it. That's not somebody's opinion that you should consider. If it's someone that has some substance to it, or let's say the troll's comment even bothered you. Let's start there, right? Have people in your circle that reflect who you are and your values. And that's, that's your reference point. Uh, again, whether it's a family member, whether it's a professor, whether it's your religious leader, have, have people there that you can say, look at this mess. And they're gonna be like, well, that person is crazy, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, what do you want to eat? Keep it moving. Because that person, that troll, you're not on that troll's mind after, after they hit send. And so you should be careful with how much time and space you give them in your mind. But if it starts to impact your position, you feel afraid, that just means you need to learn a little bit more about it. Maybe you need to go and reinforce why, why you believe in those things, come back stronger. Um, but that's going to be practice as you elevate in, in your advocacy and you, and you start to either speak out more, write more, talk about different topics. You'll start to understand that it's just part of the process and its, and its influence begins to minimize. And as always, with anything, if you need to seek mental health support, do it. If you need a counselor, a therapist, a social worker, do it. Um, somebody to confide in to walk you through it because I guarantee you this is like a cut and paste situation for so many people. Even, even those who are on the opposite sides of our issues, they get trolls um, and bots from the other side of their arguments too. So it's like, no one is safe from this. The goal is how do you block it out? And I think those are other important ways to get that done. Most polarization can happen in the home with people we're close to when you know you have a family member that thinks something different than you do. So what advice would you give to someone that's not dealing behind a screen or not dealing with threat, but with someone that they care about, the complete opposite? Yeah, I think that's an important um, circumstance to be in because it shows you that you can still love and care for someone, uh, although they have different political beliefs from you. Um, you know, the different political beliefs are not always so negative that you can't have a conversation with somebody. I think that when that opinion begins to permeate your personal life and, and create obstacles for you, or if it's harming other people, then it's something that is much more serious. But I also think, look, at the end of the day, you're trying to change people's ways, right? And you're trying to get them to see your way of things and understand whatever issue you're talking about better. And so it takes a lot of patience. It takes a lot of uh, understanding and conversation over and over. And these are the people who you want to change, right? And so this is a perfect practice point for you and the positions you're taking. Look, I have nine siblings. Pretty much almost all of them are married. I've got maybe 20 nieces and nephews. The oldest is about to start college. And so you want to talk about opinions? You'll, you'll get a lot of varying opinions, from I don't even care, I've never heard of that, to absolutely not, you're crazy. So it's like a healthy conversation, but it's good practice 
right? It's good practice when you do step out in public and it is a stranger and they come at you this way, you could say, you sound just like my father. You're just like my sister-in-law. You're just like my nephew. You know, you identify that relationship and, and it takes the sting out of it a little bit. At least it does for me. When I hear some comments, I'm like, man, I could just, I see my dad right there. You know, I see my mom. And like, you know, what are you going to do? Like make me soup now? Because that's what usually comes after you talk to me like that. For me, that's like a healthier way to, to address the relationships. I know that's, that's really funny. It reminds me of my house. <laughs> That being said, can we decouple just opinions from loved ones or from online people that are sounding off and the broader consequences of the opinions? When do you draw the line between just holding an opinion and, you know, the actual systemic things that create the environment of polarization? I think when it becomes harmful and it's actively harmful, you know, if if someone is racist and they're racist and that's it, you know, it's hard to change those ways. But if it's not physically harmful or emotionally harmful, if you don't see abusive practices, but you look at somebody and you can tell which way they're going to go, sometimes it's okay to be like, it is what it is. Not everyone needs to be saved or changed. Not everybody wants to be. Um, and so there has to be a comfort level with this is just a very real reality in our country that these opinions are going to exist and they're probably not going to go away. I think to assess the impact of it is important before you, you feel the personal need to jump in. I mean, I, I've been speaking with people, thousands of people over the last year and change because of this campaign. And I've heard everything you can think of, uh, racist or not, directly to my face, over the phone, in comments I've, I've read online. Um, and for me, I always keep in mind that no matter what I say or do, there's going to be certain groups of people that will just never see it my way or would never vote for someone like me. And that's okay because they're not my, my focus here, right? My focus are the people that do want to change, that do want to get involved, that want to see a different future. Um, and so whichever side you fall on the spectrum, just know there's a group of people just like that for you too. So I want to ask, do you think that there's that it is possible to objectively and definitively define harm so that we can know where to draw the line? Do gray areas exist or is it well polar? It's gray because it depends on you, right? What is your threshold? Um, when is it too much for you? When is it something that you can handle? And you don't have to be a hero about it. Um, you know, for me, what I found the most interesting struggle that I have as a candidate now is because I grew up in such uh, a polarized other outsider type uh, environment, right? Where I was just always not welcomed. I always felt like I was just up against these stereotypes. I learned how to never listen to anyone, um, block it all out, ignore them, have this tough guy attitude. You know, I'm very street smart. You know, I was a lot on my own, dealing with a lot of these things on my own. And that's how I, I practiced as a lawyer. I took on cases where people be like, oh my God, you're going to go up against the NYPD. You're going to go against the Department of Education, a principal, an administrator. And I would say they're positions of authority and there's abuse here. So yeah, I'm going to do something about it. And then now I became a candidate and I have to actually sit down and hear all of this and, and assess, okay, is this something we respond to? Is this something we ignore? What is the seriousness of it? And so it all depends. And you shouldn't want something black and white because there's just so many variations of it. You don't want to get yourself in the habit of, I can either block it all out or I listen to it all. Because when you have to listen to it all, it can be overwhelming. And when you block it all out, you can create a blind spot. And so temper it, just be comfortable to a certain extent hearing it. But you'll know when something is just complete BS it's complete BS. There's no value in it. There's plenty of those online. And so be mindful of that. The mute button is very amazing. So is the block button. Don't be afraid to use them. And remember that you are prime real estate. So be careful who you let move in. That's, that's a good one. We'll put that as our like tagline for the episode. What about someone who just doesn't find themselves at the center of any turmoil or debate or discourse? Who tends to avoid um, you know, taking a polarized opinion? How can or should they advocate for people and 
you know, where do they, where do they stand? I think um, we have to be mindful that being neutral uh, in difficult conversations um, can sometimes be harmful. And I'm not saying you have to always take a side, but if the conversation does come up or if you witness something, you do have to understand where you stand. I mean, you know, a lot of the issues that I focus on are civil rights issues, but I can tell you that um, there are issues that one community thinks is only for another community, right? Oh, mass incarceration is for the Black and Latino community. It's not the Muslim community. And mass surveillance and all this other stuff is for the Muslim community. It's not for the Black and Latino community. Trump is talking about immigration. That's for our undocumented brothers and sisters. It's not for me. I'm a citizen. So all of that, I think that that mindset, we need to remove it. That's the divide and conquer mindset, right? It's like, why should you worry about it? You're not X community. But the truth is what's used against one community can be used against all communities. And at the end of the day, it's up against our constitutional and civil rights. And these are powers, right? Authority that have the leeway to impose on you. And so that's why it's important to understand government intrusion, to understand racism, abuses and practices and how it plays out. And then you, where do you fit in as an ally? And so there's always something you can do. It's okay to feel like, you know what, I'm not up for getting into this mess today. But if it does come up, think about what, where do you want to be as an ally and how it fits in? Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of a quote from Audre Lorde. And she said, in no hierarchy of oppressions. And she mentions the idea that even though you're not marginalized in some issue that may come up today, it may come up tomorrow. Right. So it's important to be an ally because, you know, not taking a position is, is essentially taking one. How do we combat polarization when it seems like it's in the interest of media companies, as you mentioned, social media or news agencies? Um, what do you do if they're using polarization to get more viewership? How do we combat ourselves, combat that? You know, one of the beautiful things about social media, there's not many, but is that you have your own voice and you can grow it. You know, Fox News the other day tried to do what they thought was a hit piece on a campaign policy I rolled out. And I read the article and I was like, wow, they didn't lie about anything. This this is it. So I tweeted, you know, where's the lie, though? Uh, and then we made a video about it and we joked about it. And people are like, oh, my God, look at Fox News. Maybe maybe they're in the business of telling the truth now. You know, we got our fair, fair share of trolls, um, but you know, we were able to have fun with it and use our own platform, have our allies jump in um, and kind of twist it around. And I think um, that's the way to, to approach it is to, again, not be afraid to call them out. And a lot of people do. Um, a lot of people that build their social media platforms or that uh, are part of organizations when they see things that are, are, uh, are incorrect, or are polarizing, they call them out. And I think that voice is important. Even if you don't get any likes or retweets to say, you know, hey, CNN, Fox News, local publications, this is wrong. This is inappropriate, or this is the actual way that it works out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Should I wait for an issue to come up around me or feeling the desire to fight for something? Should you go out and look for one? Is there a danger in doing either of those things? There's absolutely, there's never a danger in speaking up for something that you believe in and being an ally to your brothers and sisters who are experiencing something. I would say you don't even have to go looking for anything. You can see what's on the news, what's going on in your personal life, whatever community you come from or position that you believe in, there's discourse about it somewhere out there. When you think about getting involved, don't think of a long-term relationship. Okay, to be involved is to think about recycling right? Recycling is the right thing to do, right? We all drink a bottle of water, a can of soda. Maybe you buy those uh, metal flasks. Maybe you have a filter at home and you're refilling your water bottle. Sometimes you throw the can in the regular garbage. 
Sometimes you throw a can in the paper bin, right? Like it happens. You get involved as much as you want to get involved, but it becomes like a value base for you, right? It's the right thing to do versus it's not the right thing to do, or this is where my opinion lies, or maybe I never thought about it, but if the conversation arises, then I want to talk about it. And it's okay. You shouldn't, you shouldn't think you have to have one foot in or one foot out at all times because it's a value in your life and you'll see it come up in just many different ways. And I think that you go at your own pace. That's the most important thing here. Like it's not, a, there's no end to this, by the way. So if you think there's going to come a time where there's no polarization or we figured it out, it's not going to happen, but it just depends how political you get. If you do run for office, if you work on campaigns, if you're part of an organization that fights a social inequity or you're working on getting funding, you'll start seeing the politics very up close and personal and it can be consuming. But when you think about why you're doing it, it, it makes it feel worth it for you. So I would say, you know, take it slow. Uh, don't feel overwhelmed like you got to carry the ball or just go out and start fighting for anything that comes your way, but start to see it as a value um, that you can consistently work from as a reference point. But, you know, you can go as hard or not as you want. Yeah, that's really interesting how you mentioned when choosing what to get involved in, sticking to your values so that even when it gets, you know, too hectic or too crazy, if you decide to run for office, even that's something you can always go back to and yeah. very clear that that's what you do. And that's why, that's why people believe in you. So that being said, when someone is in an environment where they feel like they want to speak up, whether they want to be an ally or whether they want to speak up for themselves, but there's no space to speak, how do you advise people on how they should create that space? It really depends on what the issue is. There are a lot of different mediums to get your, your position out there, whether it's on social media, blogging, getting involved in an organization, creating your own organization. And it doesn't have to be a 501c3, but creating your, your own space where you can have these conversations, one friend at a time, two friends at a time, or just be out there. I think the most important thing is, and I know I say this a lot, but I just think it's important that you understand your intention, what your position is. And this is a position that can change. And that's why for me, growth is important. And I welcome growth and I welcome discourse that allows people to come around and change their minds and their ways. But understand that part first, right? And then you'll find there are tons of organizations and groups to get involved with that are advocating on one of these issues. And you can jump in there and see how it goes and then make your next step. Like you don't have to figure it out right now, the entire thing. You can take it one step at a time. Yeah. So very briefly, before we conclude, what do you see as the future of advocacy in spaces that are polarized? And I know that's general, but more specifically, what happens in regards to your community, given mass incarceration, given the issues that are affecting the Manhattan district? I think the future is calling out the problem for what it is, not sugarcoating it. You know, I'll give you a perfect example. The entire summer since the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, um, the country erupted in protests. And here in New York, the police responded violently inappropriately a lot of the times. And here in New York, we were just seeing night after night of police videos or videos taken by civilians of police beating up people left and right. Even I went down to a protest and I was maced. And so it was really out of control. But the mayor kept saying, oh, I didn't see that video. I'm not sure what you're talking about. Look, these are trying times. And just he wouldn't talk about the subject. And I think that frustrated people so much because we were all seeing the videos. Um, but then our attorney general, she held an, a hearing, a public hearing, and she had people come forth and like, hey, tell me what happened, submit whatever you have. And she did just two full days of uh, hearings, just hearing people out, including NYPD and anyone else that wanted to come in and testify. And then she wrote a report. She was like, uh, we have a problem here and we're going to fix it. And she actually sued the NYPD about it. And I think for the public, we're like, okay, now we can start talking about a solution because finally the problem has been acknowledged. And so that's why it's so important to raise these issues, raise it unequivocally, don't water it down, 
Don't make it sound pretty or palpable because if you really want to address the issue, we just have to acknowledge that it exists and understand now what do we do next in a comprehensive real way. And, and it's not easy to do, but it's the important thing to do because one of my, one of my favorite quotes is from James Baldwin when he asks, you know, you always say it takes time for progress. It's taken my father's time, my mother's time my sisters and brothers time, how much time do you want for your progress? And I think we don't have any time anymore. Um, the longer we wait, the more families are compromised and jeopardized, the more our country falls into further disunity. And so we need to act urgently on these matters. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned to me once before that we have a responsibility to be unequivocal in the ways that we share our realities and you're right. Sometimes just sharing what the, the truth of it, the real whole truth of it is the biggest statement of all. So what is your advice for aspiring high school, college students that are looking to go into government, law, politics in this polarized climate, especially after the last election? Do it right? We need your voice. We need your perspective here. We need people who are going to be honest, open, and fight for people, fight for justice and equality. You know, politics is life. If you are not aware of politics, then you are allowing people to make decisions on your behalf. It sounds like when you look at social media, when you look at all these news stations, I get fatigued from it too. I don't even, I don't listen to them. I don't even watch them because everybody's saying what they need to say at the moment. Right. There are very few handful of, of representatives that I feel are consistent, talk open, talk honestly, even when it's hard, even when it's an uphill battle. Um, but I appreciate that reality check, right? That honesty. But you should get into law, government work, policy, community-based organizations, non-for-profit organizations, because these are people, they're human beings. Politics is about the quality of life and the priority of our families and human beings. And it's hard to see that, but really that's what we're talking about. And that's what all of these decisions impact. So I'm not saying everybody drop what you're doing, go run to law. I wanted to be a teacher before I picked law as my major, but also like politics impacts all of our lives. The law impacts all of our lives. The government impacts all of our lives. So it's not an exception to anything that you're doing. It's understanding how that impact actually happens and how it works. Uh, so I wouldn't shy away because it's polarizing. Uh, you jump in, you jump into a certain side or a certain position and you decide how far you wanna take it and where you wanna go. Yeah, that's, that's, really, that's really nice advice. It's really validating, especially you know when we're on college campuses where voices are everywhere and it's, it's very easy to get swept up in them. It's, it's powerful to know that yours has a place too and you know that we can enter this world and we can do things in it. So thank you for standing up for that idea in everything you do. And thank you for opening up to us about so many things in your life and career today. So just to close, we learned today that while standing up for your identity gives some no choice but to take a side, we as advocates hold the power to work toward unity and make our voices heard. Sometimes the most affirming thing in such an environment, for me especially, is knowing that there are people who look like me, care about me, who I trust to speak for me, and who are holding the doors open for me, like you just showed us today, Tahani. I know I took so much personally away from this. I'm very excited. Thank you for empowering so many of us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. These are such important foundational questions, uh, and I'm glad that you guys are, are spearheading these conversations.